Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. It is August 10th, 2021. It's summer break, but I guess we're not breaking here for the summer. Well, we kind of are. Anyways, Mark and Mark, Mr. Daly, Mr. Hamilton, welcome you back to the show for this Monday night. I guess Tuesday by the time this drops. Anyways, Mark, how the heck are you? It's nice to be home. It's nice to be back in the studio with all mod cons and access to proper audio equipment. But uh, did you survive without me? I mean, it, it was a challenge. And I'm more, <laughs> honestly, I, I'm a little more concerned about you. On Sunday, I went to the zoo with a three and a half year old. I still haven't recovered and it's 36 hours later. Yet you went away for a week with three kids and you seem bright and alert and yep. it looks like you're refreshed, and maybe this is all a disguise. But uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, you're ready for a, a great run because I know we got a couple of weeks left in the summer, and we've got some really cool stuff lined up for the listeners. But yep. once we get to September, the back half of this calendar is going to be bonkers. Oh, it's it's going to go crazy by the time we get up and going. It's going to be fast and furious, to use a, a motorsport kind of pun. But really looking forward to it. And you know, I'm actually really quite shocked at the amount of news that's out there usually mondays a little bit more relaxed a little bit more chill here we kind of toss around a couple of stories read some tweets uh, do some emails and things like that but there is a substantial amount of news to talk about tonight and that's usually not what we see at this time of year absolutely and it's not the news that I was necessarily expecting or necessarily wanted. Mm. I, I'm all in on driver changes for 2022. I I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed NBA free agency. And now that that's <laughs> largely over, I'm I'm pining and I've got an appetite for something a little bit more. And obviously, and we'll speak a little bit to this in the show tonight, but Alfa Romeo's hinting that they've got some changes coming up. Uh, obviously, we've been speculating about Mercedes for the better part of the last eight, nine, 12 <laughs> months, months, probably. Yeah. But you're right. Like, There's a lot of news, and not all of it is necessarily linked to drivers. And we talk about the silly season typically being the off-season when you typically see the driver switches and contract changes. But increasingly, that seems to be the summer. That's not been the case so far. But that said, to your point, there's still a ton of fairly significant Formula One news in the uh, the media right now. Well, I guess the first one, and this one I'm not really surprised, or maybe I am, I'm not really sure which way to go on this, but the first one is that the FIA has basically tossed out Sebastian Vettel and Aston Martin's appeal of the, the penalty and the disqualification he had at the Hungarian Grand Prix about a week and a half ago. Well, what's your take on this, Mark? Were you surprised that uh, they kind of tossed it out right away? No, and also a little bit yes. And to back this one up, I'm sure everybody remembers because it was painful. Vettel, who just seems to be, he seems to be 
in a new place culturally within the society of Formula One fan. And if you go back to 2010, 11, 12, 13, he wasn't necessarily disliked, but there wasn't a lot of love for Sebastian Vettel. And Mm -hmm. when he went to Ferrari, he he kind of became the Darth Vader to our Luke Skywalker that was Lewis Hamilton. At least that was the, the overarching narrative for the first couple of years in the turbo hybrid era. But in the last couple of years, especially last year, given the breakdown in his relationship with Ferrari, there's been this newfound appreciation and sympathy for Sebastian Vettel. And that kind of boiled over at Hungary when he mm-hmm. was disqualified after having that ter- terrific second place finish. Although I would argue he had better pace than Esteban Ocon and probably should have been pressing him a little bit harder. But no, I, I'm not ultimately surprised that this one was thrown out. I can't seem to get my head wrapped around What's actually happening here? Ultimately, we knew that the FIA was required or required a one liter sample of fuel for all the reasons that we talked about in the last episode. They were only able to pull out about 300 millimeters or milliliters of fuel, Mm -hmm. which wasn't sufficient. Sebastian was subsequently disqualified. But at the time, it sounded like it sounded like Aston Martin and Otmar and the rest of the leadership team were arguing that no, 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 the fuel is there, but for whatever reason, we can't get it. The car was impounded. It was shipped off to an FIA facility in France, but ultimately it sounds like Aston Martin may have been wrong, or at some point during this process, they realized they were wrong. And the debate became less about, hey, the fuel is there. We just haven't been able to access it. But rather, actually, we know the fuel's not there, but it's not there because we had a faulty valve that was evaporating the fuel. So all of our telemetry tells us that the fuel is there, but ultimately it was evaporating because of this faulty valve. And at that point, as far as the FIA is concerned, well, The debate is the rule says you need to have a leader. You don't have a leader. It doesn't matter why you don't have a leader. We're Mm going to toss this one out. And ultimately, it looks like it looks like Aston Martin's going to continue to press this one. They're going to push it to the Court of Appeals at the FIA, which is a whole different, whole different ballgame. And I don't think that one's going to be successful either. But I'm surprised it got this far, ultimately, because on the day of the race, it seemed that it was pretty black or white. It just seemed that the only ambiguous, uncertain piece was that Otmar and the rest of the Aston Martin team were convinced that that fuel was there. And at some point between the end of the race, the conclusion of the race and the outcome today, they discovered that that fuel was never there. And then it just became an argument about where the fuel went. And the FIA just said, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if there was a faulty point. The rule clearly states you need a leader. You didn't have a leader. And I think that's the, for me, the, I guess the crux of the, the, the whole issue was that I was very surprised when this was ruled upon, if uh, you want to call it that, that uh, they, they made the announcement earlier today on Monday that uh, there wasn't uh, anything to this. They actually didn't have the leader and all these, you know, different things that you just mentioned because. My takeaway from the Hungarian Grand Prix was that it was very much, oh, yeah, the, the fuel's there. We just can't get to it. Exactly. <laughs> it turns exactly, out it, exactly. And, and that's a, a bit of the surprise. But in light of that, I guess it, it really isn't very surprising at all that they decided to to, to toss it out. So, And we, yeah. we talked a little bit about this one on the Spaces chat last week as yeah. well. And, and honestly, a lot of listeners reached out over the course of the last six or seven days. And their point was, this is the kind of thing that will turn North Americans or new fans off of Formula One, that he's ultimately disqualified but we've seen much more egregious things happen and there hasn't been any penalty 
aka Ferrari in 2019. There was really no penalty for that as far as we could see in terms of the championship or in terms of monetary fine. But ultimately, this one is in the technical regulations. It's black or white. It's really unfortunate. It wasn't a good look, but ultimately he was disqualified. And the other debate that seems to be prevalent on the internet right now, at least on F1 Twitter and F1 Reddit is, well, you know what? Take the points away from Aston Martin in the Constructors' Championship, but don't take them away from Vettel. But ultimately, if Mm. the fuel wasn't there, you could argue that maybe he was running and he may not have known, maybe unbeknownst to him, but ultimately there could have been some concoction or there could have been some cocktail in that fluid that the FIA wouldn't have been able to successfully test for. And furthermore, there's always that weight advantage that we don't necessarily know if the car had enough fuel in it at the beginning of the race as far as technical regulations are concerned or the sporting regulations. So ultimately... He should have had the points deducted. They were deducted. Formula One is a team mm-hmm. sport. The disqualify- mm-hmm. disqualification was correct. Again, it's unfortunate, but the teams know the rules. Ultimately, they know the rules. Yeah. So it'll be interesting now to see whether or not this appeal against the penalty itself stands or whether that's going to be uh, tossed out as well. So I, I'm very, uh, I'd say intrigued by the way that they've really dug their teeth into this one it seems come hell or high water that they're just going to to fight yeah. whatever they can on whatever angle they can but anyway very true interesting and a bit of a bummer because i, I mean as most people probably know by now that uh, we've really kind of thrown our hat in the ring with uh, with uh, aston martin this uh, this year obviously with the canadian uh, connection with the strolls and all that right. and the Canadian uh, Racing Green, which is kind of a thing that we've uh, coined around here. But <laughs> anyways, moving away from Canadian Racing Green to maybe one of the less inspiring looking liveries on the grid. So I'm referring now to, well, this little headline anyways, that Mercedes think that the recent FAI directive has slowed down Honda. So <laughs> this is an interesting one. So basically, despite all the drama that is really engulfed and um, what do you want to call it, uh, swamped, taken over, yeah. embattled Max Verstappen over the past uh, couple of races and really has taken a big dent out of his championship lead, obviously. Mercedes actually think that Honda and Red Bull have lost some of their performance uh, because of some of the uh, FAA directives uh, recently. This is an interesting story, and it's something I've tried to... better substantiate. So ultimately, this is a report that's being linked back to a German autosport magazine, Automotor and Sports. It seems as though somebody within the Mercedes factory, somebody within the Mercedes organization is suggesting that there was an FIA directive that has ultimately impacted Honda that has ultimately impacted Red Bull and that at some point during the course of this campaign, they may have brought an upgrade to a race that had provided some optimizations in terms of the way that the power units operates energy management. So when we talk about energy management, you can probably extract or extrapolate from that, that is linked to the MGU uh, H, the MGUK, the battery system, the way that the power is fed into the turbo to keep it spooled at all times. It's something to do with energy management. Ultimately, it seems, or at least that this source within the Mercedes team is alluding to the fact that the FIA had uh, basically applied a directive towards the Red Bull team and that these directives are typically pretty secretive and they're not well known outside of Formula One. In fact, typically, as it's indicated in this article, 
competing teams wouldn't necessarily know about this. So unless mm-hmm. this is a leak that went from Red Bull to Mercedes and then somebody from Mercedes is passing on that leak, I don't know. It's it's juicy to talk about that it seemed that there seemed to have been a power loss, at least it's hard to substantiate or understand why Mercedes pace seems to have improved so much since Silverstone. We know they brought an aero upgrade, but it's juicy to talk about this, but it's just really difficult to substantiate whether there's anything here. And again, these directives aren't made public. They're not made public within the F1 community or other teams. So even if this happened, nobody would actually know unless it was Red Bull or Honda. And I would highly, highly, highly doubt that they would ever uh, offer this up for public consumption. Yeah, it just uh, one thing that sort of popped into my mind while you were talking and while I was uh, just sort of thinking about this a little bit is that if this is actually the case, maybe it just gives a little bit more context to why they just would not let go of the whole Silverstone thing and Hamilton being a dirty driver and pushing that 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 whole issue and the appeal of that you know ten second penalty that he got that you know all this. Uh, subversive stuff that goes off of you know goes on behind the scenes and things like that who knows i mean i'm just purely speculating here but like you say it's kind of fun to talk about these things and, and think about and as them, we but- talk about this and this is the great thing about doing these shows the way we do it somebody's just feeding me some additional context here apparently uh Red Bull may have been using more of their energy recovery system than is permissible as per the technical regulations. Mm. It's understood that a number of teams, including Mercedes, were aware of this, but chose not to report it. Apparently, during a regular scrutineering process, FIA delegates may have actually spotted that this was happening, who in turn informed the stewards, who in turn Hmm. issued a directive. Um, As this article or as this statement goes on, the directive isn't normally sent to all the teams, not just Red Bull, but when a directive is sent to the teams, it means either the FIA suspects a team of using a loophole or thinks other teams may be doing similar things. But ultimately, this is, again, this is unsubstantiated. It's just something that somebody sent me that kind of ties into this article, but it kind of speaks to the fact that if we're talking about energy management, it's probably ERS, uh, but it's also interesting that Mercedes apparently wasn't the one that reported them, uh, but rather that the FIA picked up on this themselves. Very interesting. It just it just never stops, you know. There, there's so much going on on the track this year and off the track as well. It so has true. been such uh, an unusual year in that uh, respect. Now, another one, this is one that we just uh, kind of threw into the show outline almost at the last moment here. And this one is something that I actually find quite surprising. And this is the fact that, and I love the way that this is being worded, is that Ferrari are ready to unleash what they're calling a significant F1 engine upgrade. And that's, uh, I, I just love that term unleash because this seems like it's going to be some serious business. So they're going to be uh, uh, you know, unleashing this uh, upgrade later this season. And it's the final power unit uh, or components that they're going to introduce for, for 2021. And it's so funny because when you go back to a year ago, I, I'm notwithstanding, I mean, the language, the tone that was coming out of Marinello, it almost seemed very defeatist. It seemed very resigned to the fact that that, that they weren't really expecting to be able to do anything for, you know, maybe the better part of a year, maybe two, maybe 2023 was the time frame that they were using. And I'm quietly... Right. You know, or maybe quietly they've they've kind of snuck up on all of us. I, I don't know if maybe they were 
I don't think it was sort of a, a little bit of a sleight of hand. I, I think that they were being quite realistic of their their. I guess their performance and their estimates, but I think that in doing so, I think that what they've done is perhaps maybe they've maybe surprised themselves. I think maybe they've extracted more performance out of this car and out of this power unit than maybe them, they, they themselves uh, expected. This upgrade is a bit of a surprise as well, partly because <laughs> I don't think most fans, including myself, necessarily understood the transitionary nature of the power unit formula we know that the we know that the spec is going to be frozen going into 2022 and we also knew that teams were allowed to make one not insignificant overhaul or free refresh of the power unit package going into the 2021 season and once they had done that once they had refreshed all of the individual components that's it you're locked in so if you were say the Golden Hawks Formula One racing team, and you refresh the entire power unit going into winter testing, you're done. You're locked and loaded. Now, you could make changes, but as we've discussed in previous episodes, mm-hmm. those changes, those upgrades have to be linked more to reliability than anything that is specifically engineered to deliver more power. Now, as we've discussed in a lot of our spaces chats, sometimes it's very difficult to disseminate the difference between a reliability upgrade and a performance upgrade because sometimes they're at the same thing. But as it turns out, Ferrari had only delivered limited upgrades to its power unit at the beginning of the season. So whereas teams like Mercedes and Honda had brought in Mm -hmm. fully refreshed, fully revamped power units at the beginning of the campaign, Ferrari had only updated a few select components. So they still have all of these upgrades that they're still able to deliver before they get locked in for the 2022 season. So the question here is one of timing, which is did they always intend to deliver a late season refresh and upgrade to their power unit as is permissible under the current guidelines? Or did they originally plan to introduce the power unit upgrade in time for the 2022 season? So it was locked and loaded for 2022. But at some point they decided consciously that, hey, we're going to deliver this early either because one, we think there's a shot to finish higher in the Constructors Championship. Maybe they thought they would be trailing McLaren more than they are. And now that they're in a neck and neck race, maybe they think that third place in the championship is a legitimate shot for them. And of course, the windfall of cash that would come with it. Not that they necessarily necessarily need it. Um, but maybe also because they want to use the back half of the 2022 or the 2021 season to do a shakedown on that power unit so that they've got a really good sense of what they're working with going into 2022. Cause remember as soon as they deliver these upgrades, you're locked and loaded. And maybe their plan always was that, Hey, we're just going to use the 2021 season. We're going to continue to de- define and refine and evolve that engine spec until we get to the end of the 2021 season. Then we have to announce our spec. It gets locked in for 2022. Maybe they're just at a position now where, hey, we think it's ready to go. We're going to bring it out. We're going to do a shakedown. We're going to continue to iterate conceptually through reliability upgrades, but maybe that's the perspective. The weird thing though, is if they're going to bring a power unit that delivers more horsepower, which is what's speculated this upgrade is obviously going to do. This isn't necessarily a reliability upgrade. This is a upgrade that's going to deliver incremental horsepower. It's speculated that it could be as much as 25 to 50 horsepower. Highly unlikely it's going to be 40 to 50. It's probably in the nature of 25 horsepower. But if that's the case and you're able to deliver this upgrade, 
you got to deliver this now. You need this for Spa and you need this for Monza, for which sure. are two of the, the highest speed, fastest tracks on the calendar. But it sounds like they won't be delivering them until after the first three races of the back half of the calendar. But it's interesting. And I'm just, for me, I'm really curious about whether it was always by design that they were going to deliver this late season upgrade. And if so, why couldn't they deliver earlier in the season? So they could have been, couldn't, or so they could have been more competitive early, or was it always a plan that they were going to deliver it in time for 2022, but they were at a point in terms of development that they could deliver it early and do a shakedown during the back half of the season. For me, this is all very, very interesting, but it's definitely going to shake things up in the constructors because if they're able to deliver more horsepower and do it reliably, it's definitely going to put some, uh, Put a scare into McLaren, I would say. Well, sure. You know, I, I think that, like you're saying, that this battle that they're having with uh, McLaren for third in the constructors, I mean, obviously, that's not where they want to be. No disrespect to, oh, intended course, to McLaren. They want to be competing for championships and and winning races and all that stuff. But so I, I think partially, like you you rightly pointed out, they, they don't need the money. It's more of an ego thing. But I think even more than that, I think it's the right. it's, it's a good benchmark of where they're at, where they're going. And I think that... You know, when you list to some of the, you know, the language and the way that they say things, I mean, for example, Mattia Bonato had to say about Spa, for example, quote, it will be a difficult race for us because we are seven tenths short of the best. And most of these tenths, at least 60% comes from the engine. We lack this compared to the best. And therefore, we consider ourselves to be behind Mercedes and Honda to date. On a track like Belgium, if you look at our simulations, it's a track where the engine matters a lot. And on a qualifying lap, I think the difference will be significant, end quote. So I I think that maybe one of my takeaways is that I think that they're being very measured. I don't think that they're necessarily rushing things. And I think that just going backtracking and going back to, say, 2020 and this sort of short to midterm range project that they're working on is that by maybe putting that you know, 2022 or 2023 date out there, is they're giving themselves time to really build it properly rather than just kind of throwing a bunch of things together and and really rushing it on uh, out on the track but the proof will be when these cars are actually competitive with the top two but certainly i think that they've quietly surprised a lot of people myself included this year in some of the results and some of the things that they've done and it'll be fun to watch when they actually put these bits into the car how they actually improve or don't because of course everybody else is improving and making changes around so we'll have to see how they uh turn out in reality anyways mark let's take a really quick break here when we come back still lots of interesting and cool things to talk about and we'll do so on the flip side so guys don't go away we'll be back in just one moment passion drive and patience the formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive ebay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, what should we go and look at? Yes, or next. Yes, I see uh, Alpine explains why they've burned through. I love this uh, headline. And uh, their allocation of uh, exhaust. <laughs> this is interesting. Anyways, uh, do you want to take this one away? Yeah, just kind of building on what we we're talking about a couple of minutes ago. I think it's important for our listeners, and I think most people get this now. At least that's the sense I get listening to the chatter on Twitter and, and on our Spaces chat and things like that. But we talk so much about the fact that in Formula One, we're in a world where cost cap matters and parity matters and competitive balance matters. And there was a time in Formula One where there were no allocations or limits on the number of components you could put in a car. If you were a big, rich team and you wanted to deliver a new power unit every single race, you could do that. And over the years, Formula One, in a bid to control costs and make the sport more palatable to a bigger number of teams and manufacturers and OEMs, have started in- instituting allocations and limits on the number of components that can be replaced. And we Mm -hmm. know for gearboxes, I think it's six this year. The power unit is three down from eight only a decade ago. And I think in the case of the exhaust, it's eight. In this case, it sounds like Alpine has burned through a large number of those. And they're ultimately going to have to be very, very, very cautious on the back half of the calendar. Because when you get to the point where you've burned through your allocated number of components, so if you talk about power units, and we've talked so much about this with Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen, happen that once you burn through your allocation, you can absolutely go from a, say, a eighth exhaust to a ninth exhaust, but ultimately there's going to be a penalty and that's going to be a grid penalty. And that's ultimately discouraged or designed to discourage teams from operating in a fiscally inefficient way because to ensure that there's competitive balance that Mm -hmm. bigger teams that possibly do this get penalized in a in a meaningful way but ultimately the interesting thing here for me was less even about the fact that from a technical perspective they've been burning through exhausts at an alarming rate it was more that in this article and this wasn't something i was aware of alpine revealed that they didn't deliver any power unit upgrades at all for 2019. So ultimately they could have, and if they had, just like we spoke to a couple of minutes ago, that engine formula, that revised setup configuration would have been locked in for 2022. It sounds like they're continuing to iterate on a formula that dates back to 2019. So for a number of reasons, COVID being one of the principal drivers, ultimately they didn't deliver any meaningful engine upgrades in 2020 or 2021. So the principal basis of the engine that they're running today harkens back to the beginning of 2019. So it sounds like Alpine's principal, principal concern here is designing, 
iterating and developing a reliable and ultimately incredibly powerful power unit for 2022. So this Mm -hmm. is one of those teams that really could surprise next season. And I was shocked by this because, of course, we saw them deliver a couple of podiums last year. And as we now know, they were delivering podiums on a power unit that was a year old, although that wasn't necessarily unheard of last year, simply because of all the things that were happening due to COVID, especially when you talk about financial restrictions and things like that. But ultimately, they're recycling this power unit now for a third championship, which is remarkable, especially given the fact that their pace and their performance seems to be improving as the season goes on. We've obviously seen the strides that Fernando Alonso has made. And of course, Esteban Ocon delivered a race win at the at the last Grand Prix in, in Hungary. But ultimately, I thought that was fascinating. And I'm now very, very curious to know that if they haven't locked in any upgrades for this season, and they're mm-hmm. going to be delivering a totally overhauled power unit for 2022, could this team come out and surprise? Because now we're in a position where we're getting a sense of at least what type of power teams are going to be able to deliver. We know Honda Red Bull are pretty much locked in. We know Mercedes is pretty much locked in. We've discovered now that Ferrari has something left on the table that we haven't seen yet. And we're going to see that towards the end of the season. Alpine, meanwhile, could be a real wild card next year because, of course, the the aero regulations, we don't know who's going to get it right, who's going to get it wrong. But one of the things that we now have to start accounting for is looking at these teams that maybe didn't deliver on their allowances in terms of power unit upgrades for 2021 and start wondering, what are they going to bring in 2022? We know Haas didn't bring any meaningful upgrades. Now we know Alpine didn't bring any upgrades. Ferrari is still in a position where they're hoping to iterate a little bit towards the back half of the season. But some interesting things for 2022. And now I'm getting very curious about how things are going to shake down when we get to winter taste testing in Spain, Barcelona next February. You know, it it is so funny. Just, uh, I find myself, or I I find having to check myself all the time just because, you know, we still have half a season basically to go. And this championship is still not decided by any stretch of the imagination, but I can't help but putting the cart before the horse almost. And when I hear all these little bits of nuggets kind of dropping, just uh, all these little hints and statements for 2022, I kind of feel like I could skip ahead, you know, when you're watching Netflix or YouTube or you can kind of just like skip ahead a little bit and then kind of like wind it back. I mean, obviously life is not like streaming, but still it, I, I'm just so excited to see what's you know what happens for 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 next year not just the cars but also the engines the wheels the tires the the, the whole package i mean it really is an f1 nerd's dream come true what, what we're going to see next year and well i, I mean we're going to be talking about it uh, obviously for, for a long long excuse me a long long time but yeah let's just get the season out of the way and then we can really go crazy on this Okay, uh, moving ahead. Now, this one is uh, interesting because it, it's another one of these sort of breadcrumbs, I think, that we see when it comes to like the George Russell to Mercedes um, connection. What do you want to call it? Anyways, he said that Hamilton, Lewis Hamilton, that is, is the best out there in equal cars. It's just, it, it seems he's saying very nice things. And also that, I, I, I don't know, I perhaps we were reading a little bit uh, too much into it at the Hungarian Grand Prix when he was on the radio about, oh, you know, you know, just do what you need to do, you know, you know compromise my my race, do whatever you need to do for Nicholas, you know, to, to make sure that, you know, he gets the result, uh, all those sorts of things. It seems... I think we were saying at the time, it seemed a little bit 
I don't know, manufactured, but anyhow, it, uh, I don't know, when it comes to this one, you know, speculation and guesswork aside, I think if they all had equal cars, I think it's pretty obvious that Lewis would still be the number one driver. Yeah, I completely agree. Ultimately, the only reason I even added this story to the agenda was I had an ulterior motive. Back at the Hungarian Grand Prix, there was a whole bunch of chatter on Twitter and and on Reddit about that comment that George Russell had made on the radio that was picked up by the broadcast. And he was being the most gracious, amazing teammate of all time. And basically like, I'll do anything for Nikki. Let's protect Nikki's race. And you and I commented on a little bit just in the sense that, hey, you know what, if, if he's being sincere, that's the kind of thing that that Mercedes is going to want to hear, especially sure. given the fact that Lewis has had challenges with some of his teammates in the past. And was he maybe playing it up for the radio? Who knows? But our listeners had a field day with it. They were nowhere near as generous and gracious as we are. And I'm going to read a tweet here real quick, just just in respect to that comment that George Russell had made to Nikki. But this is from one of our listeners, Joe in Texas. Uh, <laughs> and, and I love this comment. And it's it's directly in relation to George's comments, but all thanks to the graciousness of St. George Russell, the most selfish driver <laughs> on the grid. Sure, he'll try to cut everyone, even his teammate in the pit lane, but he will grant the team permission to prioritize the car that's <laughs> ahead on radio comms that he knows are being fed publicly to the television broadcast. I couldn't stop laughing when I, I read it. that comment. I and it. ultimately, I felt a little bit foolish that you and I kind of got suckered into that as well. Like, oh, what a great guy. He's making this great comment on the radio. But like, wait a minute, how dare he? Like, how dare he make that comment on the radio when he knows it's going to get broadcast on TV? How dare he give his team permission to prioritize the car that has better pace and is ahead of it <laughs> in the Grand Prix? But ultimately, there's probably a little bit of this too, a little bit of politicking, which is, hey, the announcement's going to come soon. Sure. Let me let me eliminate some of the questions out there about what my perception is of Hamilton, what my role is going to be on this team. But I did get a real comment out of that comment from uh, from Joe. So Joe, thank you for that, and I hope you don't mind me reading that Twitter comments on the uh, on the podcast. Yeah, I, I guess it's a nice subtle reminder that sometimes we're we're just too nice to people. But uh, yeah, that that is generous. funny. We we are yeah sometimes too generous, right? Generous to a fault. So now uh, going ahead and looking at uh, one, I love the tweet that you put out there. Uh, I think it was earlier today that was uh, which race are you looking forward to for the rest of the season, <laughs> and why did you pick Sunfort? <laughs> I thought that was really funny. But anyways, the organizers are hoping to have a capacity crowd of over one half well, sorry 100,000 people in the stands at Zanfort in September just over a month from now and still these sorts of things I mean if they can do it great but I mean it really sort of blows my mind considering we're still kind of working our way we're climbing out of the COVID swamp and getting back to normal but it I, I guess if they could pull it off with 100,000 people at Silverstone a couple of weeks ago why could they not pull it off in Holland with the with the Dutch Grand Prix I mean it's obviously going to be a, a big event. I mean, they they decided not to host it last year at the tail end of the season. Decided let's postpone to 2021 when there's the possibility to get people back into the stands. And uh, Mark de Rutte, the uh, the Dutch Prime Minister, said that last week uh, they're going to relax the COVID 19 restrictions, which basically ended a, a lockdown and all the restrictions that they had that had been going on since the, the beginning of June. 
And they basically are saying that, uh, or the health minister there says that they're they're basically expecting social distancing and mask wearing is going to be scrapped by you know one September, which is only what two and a half, three weeks from now. So, um, I you know when it comes to these sorts of things, sometimes I I, I feel a little bit uh, kind of skeptical. I kind of take a wait and see approach, but I'd love to see it. I mean, it looks great to see people back in the stands. And I mean, as long as it can be done safely and, and all that sort of stuff, it would be wonderful to see because you know it's going to be a party atmosphere there. Maybe not so much for Lewis Hamilton, but uh, definitely for Red Bull and Max Verstappen. It should be it should be cool. I mean, it is the first Dutch Grand Prix since 1985. And I vaguely remember watching that one as a kid. And I mean vaguely remember watching it i i couldn't tell you much about it other than it's just kind of one of those memories locked away here mind you i can't remember what i did three days ago so you know <laughs> maybe i'm the worst person to talk about these things but really looking forward to it with the exception of russia i don't think there's a race on the back half of the calendar that i'm not excited to see but this one i'm, I'm particularly excited about simply because i've never seen a formula one race here and yeah. i know you did but as you mentioned you were much much younger the track that we're going to see really doesn't resemble what we would have seen back in the 80s or the 90s anyways we've got a couple of incredibly cool banked corners like you said to have 90 100 and 105,000 people at the track on race day it's it's obviously going to be an ocean of orange and we know how the dutch show up to support uh their countrymen and women i think this is going to be a spectacular atmosphere i don't know but but i've read and simply looking at the schematics and the layout of the track i i know it's a it's a tight track it's not super wide i've read some analysis that suggests really the only overtaking opportunities are going to be t1 with drs and maybe t3 without Ultimately, I, I don't care. We don't know what it's going to look like. I think the the initial inaugural Dutch Grand Prix is going to be fantastic, regardless of what the racing's like, simply because it's new and the drivers are going to be get a feel of the track. The bank corners are going to be pretty cool. It has brand new tarmac, so it's going to be smooth. The cars won't be bouncing all over the place. It's going to be cool. And again, we also don't know what the weather's going to look like. Ultimately, mm-hmm. maybe it is a procession, but maybe we get inclemental weather, which throws a whole different dynamic into the Grand Prix weekend. But ultimately, I want to see 105,000 people there. I want to see them in orange. I want to see them behave, and I don't want to see any unnecessary disrespect thrown at any individual driver no matter who it is and obviously i'm alluding to lewis because of some of the uh the pent-up frustration towards him and mercedes this that's really been stirred up by christian horner and helmet marco but ultimately i want to see this race be successful like i said i want to see an ocean of orange and and i can't wait and this will be the second race after Mm -hmm. the summer break you know, if memory serves well from all the years that I lived in Holland, I mean, September is usually a fairly decent and stable-ish month for weather. I mean, Zandvoort being right on the coast means that, you know, that could obviously change a little bit uh, quicker than inland. And obviously, wind can be a bit of an issue. And sometimes, as we know, that does affect uh, the the cars. But I'm really quite positive with uh, the, the comments by uh, Prime Minister Rutte and also uh, de Jong, the, uh, the, the health minister, and all the things that they've been saying just regarding the COVID restrictions being lifted and social distancing. So, I I mean, it seems really realistic that we're going to see a lot of people there. And I'm really, really looking forward to it because, um, yeah, it's been a long time coming. And for all the reasons that that, that you said, I mean, the last time that I was actually in Zonford has been quite a long time ago. 
and I didn't actually go to uh, to watch any motorsport at the track there. My cousin was actually um, from from England was actually playing in the Dutch Open in the, in a golf tournament there, so we went to to go watch and, and cheer her on. But uh, that was a pretty cool can you just for the benefit of our listeners because yeah. you know the geography and you the know the area better than anyone yeah can you describe the location of the track where is it in proximity to uh any of the major metropolitan areas is it is it on the coast like can you describe the location and what it's like to be there so i'm, I'm just going to pull up like a an actual map here because uh, you know i need a little bit uh, sort of context so holland obviously is a very small country and uh, they have the, the the, the Randstad, which is uh, basically the three uh, uh, or four biggest cities. So you have Amsterdam, and then you have uh, Den Haag, you have uh, Rotterdam. And so Amsterdam is slightly further north than some of the uh, the, the other major cities, and then slightly in- inland uh, to the east, you have Hilversum and Utrecht. Utrecht is where I worked for KPN Telecom for a a good number of years, and that is the most densely populated uh, part hmm. of the of the country. So the, the the track itself is is pretty close to the the, the coast, pretty close to the uh, the the water and the down in, in the in the sand dunes, and it's it, it's it's unique. It's it's fairly scenic in in its own unique uh, kind of way but when you look at the way that um, that it is where, where it's located I'm just trying to find an actual location here on um, Google Maps so I can actually maybe uh, pick off some some distances here and of course now Google Maps is loading properly and of course whenever I need it but uh, anyways it, it is it is a really really nice uh, part of the, uh, the, the 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 world so cool that's yeah. awesome Anyways, yeah, it's completely uh, frozen. Yeah, and like you were saying, I, I've got it on Google Maps here, and this is yeah. such this is such terrible podcasting, by the way. It, it's terrible job on my part asking you a yeah. question on the spot, but the track itself, you're right. It looks like it's no more than a few hundred meters from the ocean, and yeah. it's literally carved. You're absolutely right. I'm, I'm doing Google Street View now just because I want to get a sense of the track. Yeah, it's literally carved out of the sand dunes, which you can see prevalent on both sides of the track in some areas. Yeah. So basically, if if you want context, so Amsterdam is the biggest uh, and obviously most well known of the cities, um, you know, in in Holland. So it's a little bit uh, more to the it's a little bit more in the the middle to the north of the country. So it's in the province of uh, Nord Holland, and so Zandvoort is basically due west of that. And then you have uh, ah. Den Haag, The Hague, which is the southwest, and then to a little bit southeast of uh, Den Haag is uh, Rotterdam. And then to the southeast of, uh, of Amsterdam is uh, is Utrecht, and that is the most densely most densest uh, population wise of the entire country. And and uh, there's also uh, very close to uh, Zandvoort is uh, Harlem. I have a, a lot of friends there, and that is a wonderful uh, city that uh, to go and visit as well. But yeah, the 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 the, the dunes or the Downen, as they're you know as they're they're called in Dutch, it's it's really quite uh, picturesque. I mean, it's you know it's kind of rolling, it's 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 quite nice. I, I mean, it's it's like you say. I mean, it's not like a big sprawling track. It's kind of winding and uh, compact uh, compared to say some of the other tracks uh, that that we see. But I mean, they've utilized the uh, the terrain there quite uh, quite nicely. And what with all the um, all the upgrades that they've done, I'm really looking forward to seeing what this is going to look like with the uh, you know the bank turn and everything like that. I'm I'm really looking forward to this for you know <laughs> so many different. Uh, 
different uh, reasons. And, and I beg your forgiveness because I think this is good context for the listeners too. Sure. When, when we say Zunvort, is that specifically the name of the track or a local town or just the area as a whole? Uh, well, it is, yeah, the, so it is actually Zunfort. So, I mean, there are, you know, some different, well, I mean, there's the town just to the, the, the south of it, but the, the, the track itself is Zunfort. Gotcha. I mean, basically just right to the, to the west and to the south of the track itself, there are some, you know, housing developments and stuff like that. And then you actually have the, um, you know, the, the there, there's a park there that basically borders the rest of the, um, you know, cool. the, 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 the the circuit to the north and to the east it's wonderful it's it's a really lovely part of the world and like i say anybody that uh, goes to holland i mean amsterdam is a is a beautiful city but it feels very different to the rest of holland it's very touristy it, it has a hmm. a very international kind of feel to it and i mean obviously you get a lot of tourists and like anywhere else i mean any other country that you go to you always have to get off the beaten track a little bit to to really get a you know a sense of what the what the country is really like i mean i'm not putting down amsterdam by any means it's one of my 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 most favorite cities anywhere but zanfort is is a is a great place to go i mean going i mean that's a it's a real you know, a real uh, destination for a lot of people. And again, Harlem is a, lo- a lovely city, which is kind of uh, cool. halfway between uh, Amsterdam and um, and uh, and Zandvoort. And also Schiphol, the, the the major airport, is is pretty pretty close by too. So anybody that's flying in and you're staying in Amsterdam or anywhere, you're not that far from the track itself. So it is pretty ac- uh, accessible. I mean, where I lived, uh, it was, uh, I mean, not that it's very far away by North American standards. Uh, it was about a hundred miles away, right on the, uh, the East coast of the country. Uh, sorry, East coast, uh, East uh, part of the country, right on the, uh, the, the border with Germany, but having a major motorway was, uh, didn't actually make the, the journey to unbearable to get there so yeah really looking forward to doing that and mark let's take a quick uh, break here and then when we come back we've still got uh, well quite a lot of uh, things to talk about and then we're going to read some tweets and some emails so we'll do that in just a minute so guys don't go away we'll be back after this short break When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. And well, we're kind of going through the stories. I'd like to say I'm, I'm still just astonished at the amount of material and things to talk about. Uh, it's it's usually at this time of year, I, I'd usually just do one show because you're really scraping the bottle of the barrel really to find anything to, to talk about. But anyways, let's go back to the sprint races now. And this is something that you and I, we've been discussing on the show now for a good number of months. And just just the format of the races itself and we, we talked about the concept of majors and then also maybe you know splitting them up if they're going to do the you know four or five times a year try and split it up you know, geographically so you have north america south america asia europe the middle east 
So they're saying that they're they're going to focus the sprint format starting next year on what they call the historical races. And uh, this is uh, from the F1 CEO Stefano Domenicali. And I don't think this is necessarily a bad idea. I think that if there's an extra cachet, an extra way to generate revenue, I, I can see, you know, going with the like the historical tracks especially the ones that have been with formula one for the long term and i I don't necessarily have a problem with that but i i kind of go back when i think about this to the comments that that we've or the the concept that we've discussed is trying to split it up evenly and geographically throughout the right throughout the schedule so it's not too weighted too much to the front end of the schedule or the back end of the schedule. I could see maybe wanting to have a bit of flexibility because if you have a real tight championship battle, maybe you want to do something like that. We've talked about that recently, that perhaps they're going to do that at the end of the season and switched around and, and perhaps do it at Abu Dhabi or something like that, or maybe one of the other races. But I just want to see it evenly distributed time-wise, schedule-wise, and also geographically. So however they figure that out and you know figure out which are the historical races, I guess, is the million-dollar question. I think we can probably put a pin in two of them already, right? Just based on what we've seen this year and just based on their relevance and their historical prominence within the Formula One calendar, I think... Obviously, Silverstone and the British Grand Prix is probably going to be a lock moving forward. If seems that if way, that's, yeah. If that's what F1's approach is going to be, that, hey, we're not going to rotate on an annual basis, but rather we'd like to dial it into specific locations that have some degree of prominence. And I think Monza's obviously a great fit as well, not least of which because of the atmosphere, but because it's an exciting high-speed track that I think a lot of us tune in to watch. I think you're then probably open to debate what the other should be. But I also like your point, and it was you that brought this up many months ago, that obviously these events should be distributed evenly over the course of the calendar, as as a major would be in tennis or in golf. You typically don't stack those back-to-back because they lose relevance when you do that. Mm -hmm. But I think the debate becomes... If you're going to put two in Europe, you're going to put one in Western Europe, you're going to put one in in Italy, where do you put the other two? And I don't know where that's necessarily going to be. It sounds like, and it's crazy to think that we're sitting here on August 9th and we only know where the first two are. We know there's going to be three this year. We've already Mm -hmm. experienced one at Silverstone. We know we're going to have one in Monza, which is going to be the final race of that back-to-back-to-back that kicks off the back half of the season. But we don't officially know where the third one's going to be this year, which is crazy. But I like your point that they should be regionally or geographically distributed as much as they are in terms of an equal distribution amongst the calendar. And for me, Interlagos, maybe, I I don't know that that race is going to happen this year. I'm not confident. I don't think Japan's going to happen. And I think come next week, once once the Olympics are, are kind of in the rear view mirror a little bit. I think Japanese officials will probably announce that that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I'm not confident that Interlagos is going to happen. And I'm still, I still suspect it's probably going to land in, in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia or Abu Dhabi simply because I think those races are far more secure. But to your point, I don't know where the others would be. Maybe Coda as a, as a mechanism to continue to build that following in the U S but also yeah. to create some differentiation between it and Miami and Canada. Now that we're going to have three races, on this content, well, four if you include Mexico City. But from your perspective, if you were to lock in Silverstone and if you were to lock in Monza, where else would you like to see the other two? Well, I think you have to pick either Coda or you have to pick Miami. I mean, precisely for the reason that you say that you want to build on the momentum that you're gaining in the States with the not just the Great existing fans, uh, fan base, but all these new fans and uh, many of whom have dived in 
and if uh, you know with with both feet and have really gone hardcore into formula one and you've got two tracks now that you can pick from so i i guess basically you have to take a look at the timing because uh, I, I, what are we looking for miami I've, I've kind of heard maybe may or something kind of tossed well, out for that's a date the next or something. story actually yeah. that's so, gonna be our next story so that, that that's a nice segue so a little tease on that one so again for for me it's a question of balance and so i, I think you got to pick um i think you got to pick one of those two um and like you say i mean silverstone just seems like an obvious lock as does monza I, I don't know for as far as a uh, like an Asian destination. I mean, Suzuka is a great track. I, I don't know if the Japanese Grand Prix, you know, is uh, I mean, historically, I mean, they've been on the schedule forever. So, I mean, it would fit that context. And then the Middle East, gosh, you know, it, it, it's really hard. I mean, I, I guess it's it's kind of hard to really kind of make that call right now because we haven't really seen any. Um, what do you want to call it? Uh, proposed schedules for 2022 right. yet? So I mean, we're, we're kind of going based on okay, this is what we usually see at this time of year, and I, I guess a lot of it also has to do is where are we going to line up? Where do the lights go green in March? Is it going to be Australia? Is it going to be Bahrain? Is it going to be Saudi? Where does uh, Australia fit into it? So at this point, it's a little bit kind of hard to to tell or for for me to really make a definitive call on that just because we haven't seen a proposed schedule for for 2022 but i think that that would be my call for one so um, cool. uk monza one of the two american tracks suzuka and then one other you know you know pick maybe one of the uh the the, the middle eastern tracks you know maybe abu dhabi because i mean it's obviously it's obviously more of a newer track but it's been the the season finale but then if the the champ the the championship is up for or isn't up for grabs is it really worth having like the sprint qualifying for a race that potentially means nothing if the you know somebody's wrapped up the the championship a race or two or three or four or whatever early right so tough call Okay, so uh, let's go to the next one since I've already <laughs> yeah, you teased this that. one so, inadvertently. Yeah, I, I, I kind of uh, you know rained on your parade a little bit. What well, you take away this one since you'd already? Oh, uh, I, I don't know if you rained on my parade, but I think this is an exciting story because this is yeah. a race that I'm fully motivated to attend. I'm, sure. I'm on the presale list, yep. whatever that means. Hopefully, I'll get that text message, that, that email in the next couple of months saying I can buy yep. tickets for. Goodness knows how much money, but it is interesting. And just to kind of backtrack, typically what we see in the world of Formula One is Formula One, the FIA, Liberty, they'll come forward and they'll release a draft schedule. I think usually sometime around September, maybe October, yeah. right? For the for the following season. So we're still a couple weeks away. But even in advance, you can start fitting together the jigsaw puzzle. So we know that next year, because contractually they own it, we know that the season finale in 2022 is going to be in Abu Dhabi. We yeah. also know, because this has already been announced, because some of the, the hosting organizations have spoken to this, we know the season's going to open next year in Bahrain, and we know a week later we're going to go to Jeddah. So mm -hmm. you can start piecing some things together. A story that came out earlier this week seems to suggest that the Miami race is going to be in the front half of May. Now, this is curious because another story that came out in this last week is that Monaco, by all accounts, is locked and loaded for May 29th. So the question is, it's probably very unlikely that they would therefore run 
the Miami race on May 22nd, which means it's probably going to be somewhere around the 7th, I guess the 8th or the 15th. So the other interesting thing that we've learned is now we know at the beginning of the season, we're going to start in Bahrain. We're going to go to Jeddah. We're probably then going to jump to Australia. Mm-hmm. At some point, we're going to migrate back to North America because we're going to have that race in Miami. And what's interesting is that a lot of people assume, including myself, had assumed that Miami, for logistical reasons, was going to be linked up with Canada. That's not apparently what's going to happen. So we're going to be in Miami in the front half of May. We're going to bounce back to Europe for Monaco. I'm not sure where Baku fits into this. We're then going to bounce back to North or Spain. We're going to bounce back to North America. America for Canada, back to Europe, and then we'll be back in North America for Austin and Mexico City, which will be linked up. But it is very interesting that next year we're going to make three separate independent trips to North America. So not only are we inching closer and closer to this world of that 25 race calendar, but in the past where they would at least compensate teams by trying to link races together on a geographical basis, it seems like we're seeing less and less and less of that. So we're going to see a little bit of it. But it to me, it's very, very strange that we're going to do that. Now, it's probably a good news story for Canada because I think for Canada, if it's got some degree of separation from the Miami event and it's got some degree of separation from the Austin event, that's good. It's good news for them because you get that additional exposure. It's easier to sell sponsorship dollars and things like that. It's also good for Miami to be independent and it's really good for Coda. And to your earlier point too, I think Coda would ultimately be a really good fit for a for a sprint qualifying race weekend. I think if I'm if I'm Coda and I'm the race organizers there, now for the first time in the history of that event, I've got to compete not only with Mexico city which didn't exist when i got that race i've mm-hmm. got to compete with canada which obviously was there but now i'm competing with miami so you go from a situation where hey when we first splurged on this event there was two races in north america so now there's four what are you going to do for me so that seems like it's a good fit but ultimately the story here is Miami's going to be in the front half of may it's not going to be linked with canada they're going to bounce back to europe for monaco and we are starting to put together a picture of what the calendar is going to look like and hopefully within the next month or so that's a story we'll be able to share on the air and start picking apart what the calendar is going to look like next year yeah, it'll be fun to see what it looks like. And you made a great point because, uh, as you said, that we're edging ever so closely to that uh, 25 race season. And then hopefully next year that will have uh, shaken off more of this you know, post-COVID hangover off and that we're, we're exactly. much closer to a normal season and that there hopefully won't be any disruptions or cancellations, but that magic number where they actually end up capping it is what uh, I'm really fascinated by what that, you know, what, what the final number is, is it going to be 22, 23? Are they going to get their 25? And if so, which tracks are they going to be? It's, it's going to be interesting to see where it actually finally finishes up. But you, you also made a great point, and I didn't think about this either. 2020 and 2021, from a, a calendar perspective, were very much all hands on deck. Yep. We just need as many tracks as possible. As long as, you, as long as you can stand up and walk in a straight line, good enough, Mr. Track, we're giving you an F1 event. But what we've seen over the course of the last couple of years is there seems to be a... There seem to be a riches of really great Formula One tracks that mm-hmm. weren't necessarily on the calendar. We obviously had some experience with Turkey going back a decade. We got to try it again, and, and we exposed Turkey to a whole new generation of Formula One fans. And now yep. maybe in that country, there's an appetite to find their way back on the calendar. 
permanently. We've we've obviously seen two additional races in Italy at historic tracks that yep. we historically haven't visited as part of the Formula One calendar. That not only are we going to be talking about all of these kind of new destinations, the Jeddas and, and the Riyads of the world, but now we mm-hmm. can start looking back at some of these more traditional Formula One countries that have this this rich kind of inventory of tracks that we could lead into. I think it's going to be really exciting because all of a sudden, logistics aside, you could see a world where you could have 25 really great races on a Formula One calendar. Well, I mean, some of these great tracks, like you mentioned, like Mugello and also Imola, and then we have Portimao and then Turkey. And let's not forget Hockenheim has fallen off the, 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 the schedule, no German Grand Prix. And then you have all of the, uh, the 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 Nurburgring. I mean, there are plenty of good venues, plenty of good tracks out there. I, I guess it, it basically comes down to making it all work, and then also making the, the the hosting fees and that deal to actually for the organizers to secure a race and 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 make it marketable and 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 be able to sell tickets to get people to go there. That's that's the big challenge. But they've they, they've proven over the past year just because it was forced upon them because of the pandemic is okay we want to put together first of all a 17 race season like we saw last year and well we're not going to be able to go here this is well it's looking 50 50 right now and i think they did a great job i mean we've seen you know quite a lot of um some tracks i mean as much as i like the red bull ring i think i'm good for the red bull yeah. ring for, for the time <laughs> being i mean so am i you know and we've seen silverstone and sahir has done a, a great great job as well but i mean there's no lack of other good quality tracks out, out there excuse me yeah completely agree anyways let's go on to the next one and alpha romeo have revealed their time frame to make a decision on their driver lineup for excuse me 2022 This is an interesting story because there's a sense that Alfa Romeo, now that they've kind of secured some long-term backing and they've really linked Sauber into Alfa Romeo for a number of additional years, there seems to be this really newfound sense of independence outside of that Ferrari ecosystem. And we we know how intimately they are linked to Ferrari in terms of Ferrari being a major power unit supplier and part supplier. And ultimately, I think that dependence is probably going to increase going into the 2022 formula era. But I thought it was very, very interesting that Frederick Vassour and not only him, but a number of other leadership individuals from within that organization have spoken candidly about yep. the fact that they're they're not only open to reviewing all available candidates but that this is their decision and that they're not necessarily going to be influenced by any external actors and that external actor of course would be Ferrari and if you look up their driver lineup today they have got Kimi Raikkonen who's a former Ferrari driver two-time Ferrari driver who won a world championship with them all the way back in 2007 his first season with the team and you have an Italian driver in Giovinazzi and ultimately if you look at that lineup you got to think how much influence did Ferrari have there and it was probably a lot it was probably (laughs) much easier to move Kimi Raikkonen out of that Ferrari seat if you've got him lined up with a return to Sauber which is where he started his career and you also have to wonder how much influence Ferrari had in ensuring that there was an Italian driver in that car and linked to the Ferrari Academy but ultimately now it sounds like and and this is good news that Alfa Romeo is open to anything you know we'll retain both the drivers we'll open up both seats we'll explore all options and we're not going to be 
ham-fisted by, by the overlords at Ferrari. And I think this is really interesting. And one of the stories that we spoke to last week as well is how closely it seems that Frederick Vasseur has positioned himself next to Valtteri Bottas at every possible opportunity. So I think the question is less about are there going to be changes, but rather are they going to replace both drivers? And yeah. if they're going to replace Kimi, is it because he's choosing to retire or simply because this team's recognized we need to get a younger driver in here who's going to help us develop and be with us for the next three or four or five years? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, whatever marketing dollars or sponsorship dollars you're bringing to us as a former world champion are just no longer relevant because we need to get past having a 40-year-old driver in this car. Yeah. Well, it is interesting. I mean, some of the names that are being thrown out there, as as you mentioned, Valtteri Bottas is one. Mick Schumacher, the Haas driver, is another. And Robert Schwartzman, he's what, a Formula 2 driver, right? Right. Yeah. Are are the the names that have kind of percolated and surfaced uh, over the past uh, couple of days or weeks or so. And I I think it's very interesting. And I I love what uh, Vasur is saying. And I I think he's being quite bold. So I think so. I think that's the right word. He's being bold. Yeah. It it will be interesting to see how this plays out and whether or not they replace either one or both of uh, Raikkonen and Giovinazzi. And then who actually comes in? Because let's not forget that Mick Schumacher is a Ferrari. Academy driver, and of course, you know th- that is the the logical track is is to go from Haas, which is a Ferrari customer team, to Alfa Romeo Sauber, which is a Ferrari customer team, kind of going that next right. step up with the ultimate goal that, or you know, I guess track you could say that ultimately one of these days he could end up being a Ferrari driver, which of course his dad was and won five world championships with the Scuderia. So that's uh, interesting. So he's saying September. So we'll, we'll know in the next four to six weeks, I would assume that, you know, what, what their lineup is going to be, but yeah, bold. That's the, that's the word that keeps popping into mind. Anyways, I'm going to be bold now. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Schumacher again. and the, A different this, Schumacher. A different Schumacher this time. And we'll do so in just a moment. So guys, don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. And yes, we are going to talk about a different Schumacher, but not necessarily a different one because I did just mention him, maybe not directly, but Mick's dad, Michael, is, uh, well, I mean, he's not coming out, but uh, Netflix is releasing a Schumacher documentary, which is going to drop in uh, about a month, sometime in September. And I can't help but thinking, is the timing not just a little bit off? Wouldn't this been like the perfect thing to drop during the summer break to, you know, for for our Formula One Jones? But anyways, joking aside, I think that uh, this is great. Really looking forward to see what uh, what this is going to be uh, like. And, uh, you know, I I mean, he was a polarizing figure in his own right. I mean, he really stormed onto the scene in 92 with Jordan and from there very quickly went to Benetton, where he won two world championships, and then to Ferrari, where he won another five, and then had a brief retirement, and then came back with a Mercedes, where he finished his uh, career in Formula One. Never improved on the seven world championships, which I don't know he necessarily intended to in his uh, swan song in uh, w- with uh, Mercedes. But really, really looking forward to seeing what this is uh, going to, to to be like. It's going to be fairly long. It's going to be just under. Uh, an hour or two hours long and it's going to be 
difference than uh, DTS, which is obviously an entire season of, uh, you know, several episodes of about, say, 45 minutes to 60 minutes each, uh, depending on it. So really excited to see what this is going to be like. I think one of the things that's going to make this so special is it's less about offering up a perspective and a look at his career for fans that were following F1 during that period, during the 90s, the early 2000s, into his last couple of years with the Mercedes team. I think this is a really exciting opportunity for newer fans to get a direct line of sight into Mm -hmm. the person and the history and the racecraft and the legend that was Michael Schumacher. And again, he wasn't squeaky clean. And we've hinted in the past that the incident at the end of the 1999 or 1997 season that had him disqualified from the championship entirely. But I'm extremely excited to see this. And one of the things that I'm most intrigued about is oftentimes when you see a big high profile documentary like this released, the the producers often manage to find some really great footage that maybe we haven't seen before. And last year when Netflix dropped The Last Dance in, I think it was probably the early part of the pandemic, hmm. it was it was a terrific watch, not only because there wasn't a lot going on and all of the major professional sports were paused, but rather unbeknownst to a lot of us, the Chicago Bulls actually had a film crew that was following them for that entire, in that entirety of that season and the playoffs. And they were shooting that documentary on film. And the benefit of shooting on film is it can be scanned and it can be basically translated into true high definition video. So back then, of course, television broadcasts were all low definition. They were four by three. Mm-hmm. They don't scale well on HDTV. But Lance Dance was really special because all of that footage was actually shot on film, which translates and scans perfectly into high definition footage. I'm very curious to see what type of footage might be available, especially from the early years of Michael Schumacher. We know all the race footage with the exception of the last couple of years at Mercedes is going to be standard mm. definition. But I'm really excited to see what type of footage might exist off the track, interactions between him and the team, garage footage. Like that's that's what's exciting for me because I know the story. I was there. I was a part of it. I think for a lot of our fans, everything's going to be great. Sort of our fans. Who am I? A lot of our <laughs> listeners, I think this whole thing is going to be exciting and it's going to be fresh. But for me, it's like, what are they going to be able to dig up and what kind of meaty nuggets are going to be new for all of us, but I'm excited about this. But like you said, and I tweeted about this earlier today, if Netflix is going to make the effort of developing Formula One documentaries, drop them during the summer break when you have the entire Formula One community just just ravenish for additional content. But September, I'll I'll take it. And I'm super Mm -hmm. excited because five years ago, I could never in a a million years have imagined Netflix dropping a Formula One themed documentary, let alone this being the complement to three seasons of Drive to Survive, which in itself, I could never have imagined them producing. Oh yeah, I mean it. It very much is uh, first world problems, right? But I mean, we we should give them props where you know where it's due because I mean, absolutely. This year they 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 were spot on when it came to the drop of DTS starting you know just right before the start of the season. I was perfectly timed. I, I think you and I binged it and you know, as fast as we could, and then as soon as we finished watching it, we dropped an episode going over our favorite you know the, all the different uh, you know highs and lows of the like the. the 2020 season and all the the awesome footage that they that they came out with so yeah really looking forward to for you know to uh, to this one for all the reasons that uh, that that you mentioned anyways let's very quickly we got a couple of uh indie stories that 
we just wanted to talk about uh, really quickly. And then we'll do a couple of emails and some tweets, and then we'll close it up with MotoGP Corner. But the first one is the uh, the Nashville race here. Marcus Erickson won his second race of the season, which was uh, kind of a crazy race that he, hold, or he held off of Colton Herta. And there was uh, what eight or nine or ten. I kind of lost track of all these uh, collisions in a very crashy race. I guess that's yeah, the best absolutely. way to push it. Put it absolutely. I feel and I know that there's a lot of excitement in the in North America in the United States right now about Formula One, but Indy itself is going through something of a renaissance. Yeah. And for those of you that don't know, back in the eighties and the early nineties. IndyCar was a, a pretty big deal in terms of motorsports in North America. Certainly wasn't necessarily necessarily where NASCAR was, but I, I don't doubt for a second that the upward trajectory that NASCAR experienced in the mid to late 90s and into the 2000s, really right up to the recession in 2007, 2008, 2009, much of that was driven by the felt that when Indy split and it went in two different directions, there was obviously some massive political disagreements within the body, within the organization itself, and it went in two different directions. You had the Indy Racing League that split off and became a prominently oval-based surf kit. You had Kart Champ car that split off and was very much a more internationally themed street course circuit type series. Ultimately, it did what seemed to be irreparable harm. And I think NASCAR was really the net benefactor of that split because they just swooped in and gobbled up all that TV revenue and all that sponsorship money and all that kind of stuff. But obviously the two sports IRL, Champ Car, Cart, they reconciled a number of years ago, but it seems like now they're in a really, really great place where they're putting together this really financially viable package. And Nashville's exciting to me because it's the first new street course that's been introduced to the calendar in the past decade. And one of the things I've been very cognizant of is that over the past three, four, five, six months, there seemed to have been some really strong momentum and excitement about this event on social media. And ultimately, it played out in a huge way. They drew over 120,000 people over the course of the race weekend. It sounded like it was a total party. People had a blast. The racing's never going to be necessarily great because it's a, a tight, windy street course. The surface is terrible. But yeah, in this case, Marcus Erickson, the Formula Formula One driver, he had 11 points finishes in his career, five seasons that spanned principally across Selber and Alfa Romeo, and I think his rookie season with with Caterham. Obviously, he's translating well in terms of in terms of uh, Indy. This is his second race win of the season. Hinchcliffe scored a podium the first of the season for the Canadian driver, but it was exciting and it was very, very cool. He had about 122 pits to get to that race victory. Colton Herta crashed into a wall of tires towards the end to throw away his chance at the race victory, but it was great and there seems to be a lot of excitement. And I'm not one of those guys that's going to be F1 over Indy or Indy versus F1. They're two different disciplines. They Mm -hmm. can both be successful simultaneously. They can feed the excitement for each other. They only race at the very most once a week. It's not like they're going to head to head five nights a week. I think uh, the renaissance of F1 is great in North America. I think the rebirth of Indy is also equally exciting and just kind of tied into this as well. So we can wrap up our Indy corner for this weekend. And other news, it seems like a number of different Formula One-centric entities have been 
Becoming more deeply invested in Indy, there was, of course, a really prominent story that ran for a couple of years that was Ferrari was sniffing around entering mm-hmm. Indy. And we weren't necessarily sure in what capacity were they going to have a team? Well, were they looking to enter as an engine supplier? But no, sorry, yeah, go on. I'm sorry to uh, butt in, but I think back in the 80s, they actually designed a prototype Indy car. I, you know, just Google it and go and look it up on Wikipedia or whatever. I mean, there are pictures out there. They were very, very serious in the mid 1980s to actually go full time into IndyCar. And then just to, as you know, to, to steal your your thunder once again, I mean, just to, to this renaissance, as you so rightly put it, that we're seeing in IndyCar at the moment, has seen uh, McLaren now take a 75% share of the team, or sorry, the, uh, the, the McLaren, sorry, the Arrow McLaren SP team, which I, I think is uh, great. I mean, they've been in the, you know, back in there for, for a couple of years, obviously, but now they're really taking it to, to the next level. I mean, th- there's been no announcement as to actual you know financial terms of the deal and stuff like that but i mean taking 75 percent over of a of a teeper franchise i mean is a big deal no matter what it is and you have to wonder as well what is driving that is it because there's a financial return on being part of the indie championship is it because ultimately you could take some really prominent young drivers that you can't fit into a formula one seat and stash them away in North America. The the other consideration too, is that it sounds like McLaren's planning to run a third car with that team full time next season, which again is a different concept because in the formula one world, it's two cars, two cars, two cars. But in the indie world, you talk about, Hey, run two cars, run three car, throw in a third car as a wild card at specific events. Mm-hmm. There's some cool, flexible stuff that you can do there. But McLaren seems to be very, very much invested in their indie adventure now that they went in with a soft investment with Aero SP originally. It sounds like they're going to take a majority stake in that team. They're going to invest in having a third car full time for the 2022 calendar. It's pretty cool. And part of this could be as well that, hey, if we've got cost certainty around Formula One and we know we're only going to be spending $135 million on the F1 team each year, maybe we've got some extra capital lying around and we can go and start investing in some other prominent motorsport series to gain some additional exposure. So I think this is genius for McLaren. I'm still very suspect about where this money's coming from. And I think we know where some of their bankroll and some of their investment is coming mm-hmm. from because we've alluded to that in the past. But I think it's very, very cool that you see some cross-pollinization between Formula One and Indy for whatever the motives. And obviously, I would love to have seen Ferrari um, enter that world. I think that would have been next level. I think it could have been problematic for Formula One from a marketing perspective simply because Ferrari's always been exclusive to that championship, but either way, I'm happy for IndyCar. I'm happy for all the motorsports fans in North America where this has prominently been or predominantly been a North American specific championship, but very, very cool nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, let's take one final break, Mark, and then when we come back, we'll do uh, MotoGP Corner. We'll do a couple of tweets, a couple of emails, and we'll do so in just a moment. So guys, don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And oh, wait. Oh, wait. Is that the, is that the MotoGP jingle? Here you go. All ready to go. It's just right out of the shoot there, Mark. Anyways, you got a couple of things you wanted to share with us uh, this week. I also understand I have a timer, so I've got to keep this under about five minutes. So I will try. Big news in the world of MotoGP over the course of the last week. Valentino Rossi 
possibly one of the most transcendent motorsports athletes, superstars of our lifetime has announced his retirement. I don't think this comes as a shock to anyone. Up until the end of last season, he was still racing for a prominent front-running MotoGP team. He was by his choice, we believe, relegated to a second-tier MotoGP's team. His performances have been poor and inconsistent. He's really struggled in practice, struggled in qualifying, struggled on, on the grid. It's not been a great year for him. But all of that aside, I don't think we should ever let that mask what has been an absolutely monstrous career for this guy. So Valentino Rossi, number 46, he's 42 years old. He entered the MotoGP circuit in 2002. He won the championship in his first season with Honda. He won 11 of 16 races in absolutely dominating fashion. He won the championship again in 2003 with Honda. He made a monumental switch to Yamaha for 2004. He won the title in 04, won it in 05, had a couple of soft seasons, won it again in 08 and 09, Mm -hmm. made an ill fit moved to Ducati for a couple of years. Again, being an Italian racer, I think there was a pull. There was some compulsion to go and help to build up an Italian manufacturer in MotoGP. Wasn't super successful. Returned back to Yamaha. Had a string of second place finishes in 14, 15, and 16. Came ever, ever so close in 15. And I tweeted about this a couple of days ago. If you ever thought that the 2016 Formula One campaign, the battle between Lewis and Nico was intense. You simply need to go back to 2015 and look at the battle between Valentino Rossi and his teammate Jorge Lorenzo. That was that that put it really made the Nico Lewis battle seem like a daycare squabble. It was intense, (laughs) it was crazy, and ultimately it, it culminated in the fact that. There was contact between Mark Marquez and Valentino Rossi in the penultimate race in 2015 at Malaysia. There was contact between Rossi and and Marquez. It was a story that exploded beyond the world of MotoGP. Formula One drivers were commenting on it. Politicians were getting involved. But ultimately, Valentino was placed at the back of the grid for the final race of the season at Valencia. He carved his way through the field, got up to the fourth place. It wasn't enough. He lost the championship. But ultimately, the greatest MotoGP racer of all time, arguably one of the greatest motorsports athletes of all time. And one of the stories that I kind of want to speak to as well is that between 2004 and 2010, Valentino tested tested extensively with Ferrari. And it's Mm -hmm. generally understood that in some years, he was only as little as a second off of the pace that was being set by Mm -hmm. Michael Schumacher. And this could be one of those things that's been built up as mythology over time. But it's generally understood that there was a seat that would have been available for him in the 07 season, which would have been incredible because we could have had a season where you had a rookie Valentino Rossi and a rookie Lewis Hamilton. Ultimately, he decided to continue his focus on MotoGP. It paid off because he won another title in 08 and 09. But this is a guy who is synonymous with motorsports, synonymous with Italian motorsports, and even today is considered to be part of the Ferrari family. So incredibly, incredibly sad that he's going to be losing, leaving MotoGP. But as a 42-year-old, and given how incredibly physically demanding MotoGP is, and we talk about Formula One being physically demanding, and I think it takes a lot of effort to articulate to people that haven't raced an open-wheel racing car how demanding that is in terms of the strain on your neck and your bodies and your dehydration mm-hmm. and how, how strong you need to be from a cardiovascular perspective. MotoGP is at a whole different level of physical requirement, but ultimately this will be his last season. For me, I'm happy. 
one of my bucket list items of, of my lifetime was to see him score a podium. My wife and I managed to do that a number of years ago. So that's a moment that's very special to us. But awesome. his focus post MotoGP is going to be back into racing. So he's not going to be leaving the world of motorsports. It sounds like he's going to take a run at Le Mans. He wants to become more involved in four wheels. So automobile based racing. So he's not going anywhere any soon, but this will mark the end of one of the most storied, storied careers in motorsports history. Awesome. There you go. So a bit of a round of applause here from, uh, from us. And let's so now. Was that, was that applause because I kept it under five minutes or because of the quality of the content delivered? Well, <laughs> <laughs> let, let's say it was a little bit of both, but uh, okay. yeah, sad to see him uh, retire. But uh, like you say, I mean, one of these transcendent uh, figures and uh, what an amazing career that uh, he's had. Okay, let's delve into the mailbag now. Do you have some tweets locked and loaded for us? Yeah, so I think one of the first questions I'm going to ask, and this comes from user at Dexter underscore Herreras, and I apologize, I always tend to tend to butcher butcher names, but his question is a pretty basic one. Hey, I'm watching Formula One on ESPN today. Seems pretty good. I can DVR the races. Sell me on getting the F1 TV app. So I can definitely comment on why it's valuable to me. But from your perspective, I know that you've started making that transition yourself away from um, our cable provider here in Canada. But yeah. if you had to do a 30 second elevator pitch for the F1 TV Pro app, and again, guys, we are not being paid by Formula One. This is not a sponsored segment, I promise you. But <laughs> what would your elevator pitch be well i mean the the, the big thing being uh, you know living in north america is that we're subjected to commercial breaks all the time so the one thing that i like is once that the the, the feed starts it's uninterrupted i love the fact that uh, you can uh, switch between the in-car cameras i love that there's the that the pit lane camera there was the uh, the audio issue at the the hungarian grand prix where they didn't have uh, crofty and nico rosberg to start the race for me not such a big deal i switched over to the dutch feed listened to the one and only Olaf Moll, which was a, a bit of a throwback uh, two times gone past uh, for, for myself. But it, it's just a great package. And I also love that, uh, you know, you get the access to the race radio and the telemetry and all that, uh, you know, all the nerdy stuff, too. So that's basically why I like it. I, I think it's fairly affordable, too. I mean, compared to some of the other ones, I mean, I'm getting ready to drop, uh, you know, a season subscription for Dazen. So that's going to you know be a, a fairly hefty one. And I think uh, that F1 TV Pro comes in at about what is it about 70 bucks for a year i mean yeah it's 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 a bit of a pricey one but if you kind of break it down what you get i think it's good value for money i agree i think it's great value for money and i know our listeners in the u.s don't have to contend with ads during the race on espn but up here in canada we talked about this on the last spaces chat we have ads during the race and i don't know that there's many countries in the world that suffer but when we're during the race TSN, which is our broadcaster, will block off a segment of the race. Will they take the actual race window? And to your point, they always seem to do it during a moment of anticipation or excitement or suspense. They'll take the race, they'll put in a tiny window up in the top corner, and then they'll play an ad 
one or two or three of them back to back to back with the audio. So the presentation here in Canada, it's not good. It's not good enough. They're doing a disservice to the sport, but the app's fantastic. I love the flexibility of being able to watch on my phone or watch on my computer or both, which is super, super cool. The yeah. quality of the app has gotten significantly better. I can now airplane natively to my TV and do yep. other things on my phone. We know there's an Apple TV, a dedicated Apple TV app coming in later this year, at least F1 continues to promise that. The quality is better than ever. I love the fact that you can go back through every race dating back to, I think, 2007. I yeah, love the, the quality of footage. Yeah. The archive's great. I love the fact that I don't have to remember to set a DVR, which inevitably yep. I never would. There's just so many good things to it. And I think in terms of the value, I think it's under $100 Canadian. I can't remember the exact amount. To me, it's a no-brainer because mm -hmm. really my cable package was principally just to watch Formula One anyways. And by cutting cable, I'm saving $100 a month anyways. And I don't have to have that big, stupid, ugly circuit 2005 hd box under my otherwise beautiful oled freaking tv so so yeah i like the app a lot i i really do like the app yeah yeah and also i think there are some um is there not some uh documentaries on there as well i think there Absolutely. were yeah yeah totally worth it all right cool what is the uh the next tweet then so this is a question I think we've had before as well. A lot of pe people, and this isn't even a specific one, but a lot of people reaching out, hey, going to be traveling, going to be on the train, going to be on the plane, going to be on the boat, which is awesome because, again, it speaks to the fact that people are getting up and they're traveling again. Hopefully, we're starting to shake off this, this pandemic norms that we've kind of built up and, mm. and surrounded ourselves with. But looking for recommendations on book, if you could recommend any one Formula One book, what would it be? Well, just uh, going back to the uh, the, the Schumacher uh, documentary that's going to drop in about a month's time or, or less, uh, the James Allen's book about uh, Michael Schumacher, I found very, very good. Um, I read that. Oh, it, it's not a new book. It's been out there for, for quite a while. I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Uh, James was the Formula One. He was Crofty before Crofty. And, uh, you know, he's a very knowledgeable guy. But that, that one I found uh, pretty insightful because there was a lot of, uh, I mean, there was obviously heavy on the, the the Formula One career of Michael Schumacher, but it was very interesting because it really uh, dived into their background and how they came up, himself and his brother Ralph, and how they got into racing, into karting, how he broke into Formula One with Jordan. So that, that was definitely a good one. I think that's a really, really good one. I, I've I've got that one on the shelf. I've been meaning to dig it for a while and certainly saving some for yeah. traveling some I'm hoping to do later this year. I think the two that I would recommend, and this is, I, I can recommend these verbatim simply because so many people ask, but How yeah. to Build a Car by Adrian Newey is exceptional. It's surprisingly accessible in terms of the language and in terms of the way that he presents some fairly complex ideas. And the other one, and I know that you're very familiar with, with this one as well, is Total Competition by Ross Braun. Yeah. It's good. It's Book. a weird book. book in the sense that it's kind of co-authored and narrated by two individuals. It's kind of Adam Parr that's kind of sharing some of his experiences, although they're very, very shallow relative to Ross Braun, of course. But it's I think principally it was, a Ross Braun book. No, please go on. Yeah, I think it was done on purpose because in that book, you know, he mentions and refers to Sun Tzu's Art of War quite a lot. Yeah, and if yeah. you read the Art of War, that's very much the way that 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 manuscript that that, that uh, document is is written. So I think that there was a little bit of intent behind that with, with Ross and with Adam Parr, with that sort of back and forth. 
But uh, yeah, it's it's a great book. It's very insightful, and I love hearing, uh, or maybe not hearing, but love getting into the heads of these, uh, you know, the, these greats of motorsports and some of the people that have done some uh, amazing things. And um, there was another one that just, uh, oh yeah, and if you're a really technically nerdy person that loves to know how these cars are uh, put together, go uh, onto you know Amazon or whatever, look up Haynes Manual H A Y N E S, and I think they have the uh, a manual for the McLaren MP4. Four, or is it the four five That's or the four six? One. And I think uh, what one. was it the FW fourteen B? So if you want to know all the widgets and all the little things that uh, that make up a classic Formula One car, they they do have several. I think there there might be more in that uh, that that series. So you know, lots of pictures. But uh, you know, if you you want to go down to your local auto supplier and start <laughs> start getting pieces to build your own McLaren MP four four, then you want to pick up that uh, that Haynes manual. Oh, that's a great one. Question. Another question for you here as well. Sure. This one comes up all the time. So I'm not even going to attribute this to any specific listener. Okay. I don't want to necessarily suggest that we have a favorite team today, although I think you could probably pick up who that is. But growing up, what was your favorite team? And for a new viewer, somebody that's new to Formula One, if they haven't kind of zeroed in on a team, what would be a good up and coming team for somebody to start supporting today? So what was your favorite team when you were growing up following the sport? And maybe you didn't have a favorite team. Maybe you just had a favorite driver, which I think is common in sports like the NBA. But if you were also helping somebody pick a new team today, where would you, what direction would you point them in? I, well, growing up as a kid, I was a huge Williams fan. I was a huge fan of Nigel Mansell, and that kind of carried forward into the the Alain Prost, uh, Damon Hill era, and then uh, you know you had uh, Jacques Villeneuve, and I, I've always had a soft spot a soft spot for that team going forward, just because I guess it's like your first car, your first job, your first uh, girlfriend or boyfriend. Is it's you always have that sort of sentimental connection, you know? You always kind of fondly look back at. It. But I mean, Mansell was a great driver. And that they were a great team in the mid '80s, early '90s, all all the way up, uh, probably into the early 2000s, and then the decline was. I mean, it's it's been up and down, and then it got really bad, you know, several years ago, and they've been in the in the doldrums ever since. But that that was my favorite team growing up as a as a kid. How about yourself? You know, it's funny, very very similar. I was. I was associated with William simply because I grew up just like you spent a lot of my youth in, in Europe, in the UK. My, my grandparents were huge fans of Williams. I realized in hindsight, it was probably because Nigel Mansell was driving for them, but yep. we would, we would, our Sundays were very structured. So we'd get up in the morning, we'd go to a local restaurant, have a Sunday roast. So roast beef, <laughs> roast turkey, actually never roast turkey, always roast beef. Roast beef we'd come yeah. home by two o'clock. We'd nest, kind of nestle down, watch the Grand Prix. And it was always, always Nigel Mansell. The funny thing is, and I didn't have this realization until many, many, many years later, but when I was young, I actually thought that Paul Tracy raced in Formula One. And it was only much later that I realized that on alternating weekends, we would watch Formula One and we were also watching Indy. And and when I was young, I I couldn't distinguish between the two of them. It was just fast cars going around the track. And I liked Paul Tracy because he was Canadian, but it also spoke to how big Indy's global footprint was back in the early 90s before Great the series point. split in two yep. different directions. And I think a lot of people might know, or maybe they don't know, that at one point as a world champion, Nigel Mansell basically jumped from Formula One 
to Indy. That's how big Indy was, that you could have a prominent world-class driver move from one series to the other and be successful. And it would be the equivalent today. What would that would what would the equivalent be today? Would that be a, a Lewis or a Max just moving over to Indy and dominating right away? I, I think so. I mean, it was pretty earth shattering at the time, and it was uh, very unexpected. I mean, it it was one of those headline moments for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I was going to go into the mailbag here, and yeah, I've it. got a whole bunch. But I don't know really where to start. Um, we've got one here. Well, first of all, we got uh, one from uh, our one of our favorite listeners, Bitter Brad in Pittsburgh at Bitter in Pittsburgh. So he's a really great Twitter follow, by the way. If you're into pop culture and movies, he's a great follow. And yeah. we've got some. We've got a number of folks that are in that industry that are great followers. But uh, I've enjoyed his uh, narration on the DC Cinematic Universe. The last oh, that's couple awesome. Of days. Yeah. Well, I, I unfortunately I'm going to put this one on because we're already running at about nine minutes here and this one ah. because this this is a long one this is a lot if you want to go there we can go there because uh, he's asking some some questions so it, it, the title of the email is can we talk about lance stroll okay do do, do we want to tackle this one now no, I'm I'm out of bandwidth. I'm out of data for this month. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's very. Oh, let's go for it, anyways. I feel like but he's first of all, us on blast here. No, not really, not really. But first of all, you know, I, I just want to put it on the record that I'm totally down with the whole bitter in Pittsburgh thing. It's it's a real town. It's people. You know, they they you know they've got real problems there, and you know, I, I'd rather be bitter in Pittsburgh than sleepless in Seattle. You know, Ooh. number one because you know I'm not really feeling the whole 1990s Tom Hanks rom com thing and i mean and what do people in seattle really have you know it's like you, you went down to the, the the mall and the birkenstocks you wanted on sale they weren't there in your size you you, you couldn't find a charging station for your tesla your, your 40 dollar a day latte habit is eating into your your finances and now you don't know if you should be making four trips a day to starbucks or you you got to cut back on those hot yoga lessons anyways i'm going off on a bit of a tangent when i say Seattle. I'm using inverted commons. I'm I'm actually using Seattle as a placeholder for Vancouver. So I'm really I'm really throwing shade at ourselves. Anyways, I love it. Anyway, so uh, Brad has to say, "Hi, Marks. I've been a little quiet on a between a long vacation and starting a new job, but I'm dropping a handful of questions that have been rattling around in my head into your mailbag." First off, a disclaimer of my own personal bias. You will never under any circumstance catch me cheering for a billionaire's son. With that out of the way, I wanted to ask about Lance Stroll as a driver. I feel like between my above stated bias and the way he was portrayed on DTS, uh, in brackets here, aloof dopey, and uh, you know, and close brackets. I've never thought much of him, although he does regularly put in good races and occasionally shows flashes of brilliance. But what I see is more often than not is flashes of danger. It seems like Stroll finds himself in these situations a lot more than other drivers, from contact incidents to blowing out tires to re- repeatedly dukes of hazarding. Cue the Waylon Jennings here. His F1 car over the curb at Monaco. Sometimes it seems it's the only way to guarantee an incident that will not involve Stroll is if it happens at at the front of the pack. So I'll guess I'll break this down into three questions. And I'd like to ask that you reserve all of your Canadian pride for the third one. Number one, is Lance Stroll a reckless driver? Number two, even after several years in F1, is skipping F2 and the experience he'd have gained there hurting him? And number three, am I being too mean? 
Thanks for continuing putting on great shows. My wife and I have been doing a lot of road trips this summer and your podcasts have been essential. Bitter Pittsburgh Brad. So number three, yes, you're absolutely being too mean. And uh, I say that obviously a, a little bit uh, jokingly, but uh, I'd love to hear what uh, you, you think about uh, Brad's analysis and uh, if you want to tackle, start tackling his questions. Yeah. So first of all, I feel terrible for his wife that she's regularly subjected to listening to us on family road trips. <laughs> I, I, I actually completely agree with his analysis. I I don't... <sighs> I like I like his his assessment that he came across as a little bit aloof and a little bit dopey mm-hmm. on Drive to Survive and I've picked up on that a couple of times in interviews. He seems sometimes a little bit disinterested, he seems a little bit distracted. I I would strongly disagree that he's a dangerous driver. I feel he's a perfectly capable driver, but I'll I'll admit that I become increasingly frustrated with him as his career's progressed. To me, he feels very much like an Andrew Wiggins. And this is this is the perfect NBA parallel, which is a kid that entered the premier level of the sport in which they compete with Mm -hmm. all the tools and resources in the world. So Andrew Wiggins came from a family where his father was a former NBA player. His mother was an Olympian. He was incredibly gifted. He was incredibly capable, had all the tools in the world, but just hasn't delivered and executed at the level that we all believe he's capable of delivering at at the, the premier level. Lance, I was I, I was feeling really, really good about him at the beginning of last season. If you remember, despite the retirement in Austria, he had a seventh, a fourth, a ninth, a sixth, a fourth, a ninth place finish. Then he scored that podium in, in Italy at Monza. It was looking really good. He had a terrible midseason. He had COVID. He had three retirements and four races. He missed a race because of illness. He was 13th in Imola. He did score a podium in Sahir, but ultimately the back half of his calendar was pretty poor. For me, it's not about the fact that he's a dangerous driver because I don't think he is. I think he's a, a fairly reliable driver and I like his racecraft. I just, I don't know if he has the same degree of motivation that other drivers have. In fact, I would like to see him take more risks, to be totally honest, as part of his driving. I don't necessarily see him making that aggressive move, that that overtake on that the inside, that that racy overtake on the outside. I don't see enough of that from him. And again, we see some flashes. I just don't see enough. And I love him and I still believe he could become a really prominent competitor in Formula One. I just don't know what his motivation is. And I think that's starting to show a little bit. And again, to me, he's the Andrew Wiggins of the uh, Formula One. Hopefully Andre and some of our other NBA listeners agree, but I'm becoming increasingly frustrated because of that, because I think he has all the tools. He has all the resources. I just... I don't think he's delivering, and I think don't think he's delivering because he doesn't necessarily have the same motivations as some of these other drivers. I don't know. Do you agree, or do you see it differently? Yeah, I, I think he also uh, Brad makes a good point too, just about you know really sort of accelerating up into Formula One at such a young age, and maybe not having the benefit of having some extra time in some of the junior formulas. You may have I, I don't want to say hampered him, but really didn't maybe he just missed out on that opportunity just to mature a little bit more and, and, and just grow as a driver. I mean, 
and and that's the thing. I mean, I, I understand the sentiment of not, you know, cheering for like a billionaire's son. I mean, why why do you really need to, you know, feel sorry for the one percent right. kind of thing? Right. So I, I totally understand where he's coming from on that one. But I mean, a lot of these guys come from privileged backgrounds. I mean, you know, guys like Lewis Hamilton that you know come from you, you know and Esteban Ocon, they're the exception. Exactly. I mean, they're they're great stories in and of themselves, but I mean they really you know, unfortunately tend to be the outliers. So I, I, I tend to try and put that to, to, to one side because I feel that if I'm going to not cheer for somebody just on basis on the background, you know, I feel I'm going to be ignoring like 75 or 80% of the, of the grid. But certainly, I mean, the one thing that is without a doubt is that with the backing of his, you know, his dad and, you know, the stroll fortune is that, that, that money bought him, you know, the, 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 the opportunities and, you know, places that, you know, would have probably not have opened up to him at, you know, obviously at such a, a young age. So, I mean, that certainly helped him get to, to where he is right now. And I, I think that's a pretty good observation that uh, that maybe he did miss out on a bit of development by accelerating so fast up through the the, the different stratum of uh, form, form, or, you know, motorsports to, to get to Formula One. Absolutely. And let's remember in 2016, which was his final year in the lower formulas, he crushed an F3 for Prima. Yeah. He crushed. But you're absolutely right. His first couple of races in Formula One, it was a it was a mess. And it wasn't necessarily because he was unsafe and he was driving into other cars and he was driving beyond his capability, but he simply didn't understand the mechanical grip or the aerodynamics of the car. He couldn't get enough heat into the brakes. He didn't understand the tires. And there was definitely some learning curve. And I remember after the third race, because he had three consecutive retirements to start the season, I'm just like, I don't know how he's going to get out of this. I, I don't know how this is going to improve. And then much to, much to I think, my surprise, by Canada, the seventh race of the season, he was in the points. And then a race later at Azerbaijan, he had a podium. He finished third. And it would have been second if not for the fact that he had uh, that place nipped away from him by Valtteri Bottas at the last, last, last mm. second in an almost photo finish. But for sure, in the early part of his career, I think the lack of experience with a with a bigger, heavier, grippier car with more advanced aerodynamics and braking and different tire compounds, I think that definitely hurt him. But if you look at the back half of 2017, he put in a handful of points finishes. He only finished a couple of points behind Felipe Massa, who is a long-tenured Formula One driver. So I think, obviously, it, it impacted him in 2017. I think 2018 as a whole was a setback being paired with Sergei Sorokin and some of the terrible kind of organizational decisions that 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 organization had made in terms of their F1 aero philosophy and things set him back in his personal development. And I was excited for him to move over to Racing Point. 19 wasn't great. 20 was very exciting, at least the front half. But I just, I don't understand what his motivation is. And I don't think anyone does. And I think if somebody can unlock the beast within him, if it's there at all, he could be a real competitor. My fear is that that fire just may not be there. Yeah, you know, great points and a great, uh, great question. So thanks for that, uh, Brad. And I was going to say, you know, now that I got uh, you know the theme song for the Dukes of Hazard, <laughs> you know, running around in my head, I was thinking, you know, maybe we get Waylon Jennings to write us a theme song. And then I realized, you know, he died like 20 years ago. So, well, moving right along to less touchy subjects. So we got one more and there, there's a ton of great emails and we'll get to them over the next uh, couple of shows. So if we haven't read it out tonight, don't worry, we'll get to them. 
Anyway, so the next one's from uh, Yarmo Copers, and uh, he says, uh, "Hi, Mark Squared. I've been a fan of the show uh, of the sport now for three years. This happens not so coincidentally uh, to coincide with the start of DTS in some magical way. This also interested my girlfriend in F1, so now we watch every race together. We just booked two tickets to attend our first race race at Autodrome Nacional Monza. I'm beyond excited as I have always loved this track. Since we are Dutch, we will make the whole vacation out of it at the Italian Lake District. I mean, what a wonderful trip to make. That's awesome. I'm totally jealous of you guys. Uh, we have uh, tickets for Laterale Destra B in the middle of the straight with seats overlooking the pit boxes at the podium. But at Monza, there is free Friday, which means we can walk to each grandstand except the premium ones and sit where we want during FP1 and FP2. Personally, I wanted to take a look at the first and second chicane, but where would you advise we take a look or what would be some awesome places to check out FP1 or FP2 on Friday? Also, have either of you been to Monza and do you have any more tips and or tricks to fully make use of the weekend tickets and experience as much as we can? This can also mean going to the Ferrari Museum or any related Formula One things. Keep up the awesome work and content with uh, kind regards, Yarmo. So number one, yeah, that Ferrari Museum has to be a bucket list thing, uh, destination for any Formula One fan. Now, I haven't been to Monza. It is definitely on my list to, to go. But I think for me, if I had the opportunity to go and check out, um, you know, sit in a couple of different places, I'd like to sit at the Lesmos and just see the cars go through those corners because we're, we're not going to see this amount of mechanical grip on these cars next year possibly so it'd be pretty awesome to see them going in there and then i'd also go to the first uh, chicane at redifilio because they're going to be coming down the pit straight there absolutely flying going into that 90 degree right hander so you're going to get a great sense of the decel well the, the the high end speed the top speed then the deceleration going into redifilio going through the chicane and then once they punch it again coming out of the chicane and then going around uh, the, the corner there and then i would think also uh you know Parabolica is one of the iconic Formula One corners. I mean, it's not the original Parabolica, but still the way they come down that back straight, throw the car into that right-hander and then come back out into the pit straight. I think that would you'll be something to see that in real life. What about yourself? What do you think, Mark? Oh, very similar. So I haven't been, and I'll be honest, this is probably the Grand Prix that my wife is most invested in seeing. And mm. I think it's probably something we would have done last year or possibly this year, if not for the COVID situation. So this is the event that she's most excited about seeing. For me, it's it's always been on the list, but after seeing the atmosphere in 2019 when Charles Leclerc won there for Ferrari, I just for me, I, I need to be a part of that. Like it needs to be on my bucket list. But to your point as well, for me, if if I have the opportunity to try a couple of different positions throughout practice and qualifying, T6, T7, high-speed corners, I think they're a great place to be. You have the possibility of seeing over overtaking. You have the opportunity to see the cars up close. I, I always caution people when they go to their first open wheel racing event to stay away from grandstands that are on straights. It's mm. not super exciting. Now, if you're on a grandstand that immediately overlooks the grid, that's one thing because you have the experience of seeing the cars being set up and the drivers getting in the cars and the tire blankets being taken off and the cars rolling out to do the formation lap. Like that's pretty exciting. But ultimately for me, I advise to typically stay away from a grandstand that's on a straight otherwise, because honestly, the cars come by so so quickly yeah exactly the yeah. cars are gone it's a blur you you hear
hear them and then they're gone. It's not a great experience. So if you can position yourself around a corner, so corner six, corner seven, Parabolica, those are great places. This is a high speed track. There's the possibility of seeing overtaking in those points. Um, that's where I would typically try to position myself. And in terms of kind of motorsport themed things to do around the, the track for me, it would be the, the Ferrari Museum for sure. But there's a ton of more historical I would say cultural things within the vicinity of Monza that I think would be very, very attractive to see. I'm probably not the best person to to recommend any because I've not been there, but I think you're doing something that will make both myself and my wife very, very jealous. And I would highly encourage you- Count me in you, on that too. <laughs> yeah, once you get there and you've experienced it, Send us some photos. Uh, send us an email with your experiences. We'll read it on the air. We'll share it. People love to know this type of stuff. Yeah. Um, so why don't you um, come back to us and share your best practices and your recommendations, your experiences, and we'll read it on the air. We'll share your photos. I think uh, I think all of our listeners would be very, very excited. And I'm sure that many like us are quite jealous that you're getting to experience this, but also there, very happy for you. There you go. We're going to have a Lonely Planet F1 style uh, on the show going forward. Trademark, nobody copy this. This is our thing starting now. Anyways, let, let's wrap it up there. We threw in a couple of uh, bonus uh, questions there, which is great. I mean, there's still tons more to go through. So, I mean, by all means, uh, please keep uh, sending them in. And that is pretty much it. We will be back in a couple of days, as always, with the, with the Thursday night show. And until then, uh, on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Thanks for the tweets, the emails. Best way to get in touch is via Twitter at ScuderiaF1Pod. And uh, don't forget to, to join in on Thursday night for the Spaces Chat, which Mark does such an awesome job uh, hosting and running every week. And if you want to get in touch via email, by all means do so, ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com. And that's it. Have a great week. We'll talk to you again in a couple of days. Bye for now.